American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life when the words all come down like blues. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe. She's Amy and I'm Joe. And we are so good looking. All right. And you should Google us. No. Today we are talking about 1953. Yes. We took a week off and this is my sincere apology. Mm -hmm. I was traveling. Yes. Uh, back from a podcast festival called Podcast Movement in Nashville. And then after that, uh, I hosted a 50-year-old guy birthday party for 10 50-year-old dudes. Mm-hmm. And they went out to the clubs in Nashville. And they got it on. 50-year-old style. Yep. It was a 50-year-old birthday. So that said it was hard to i had work was piled up and i had a lot of work okay nobody cares nobody cares that's why sorry we took a week off okay without notice so we are diving right into may of 1953 we are and i i brought back from ohio with me an ale smith hazy 394 i'm trying i'm not jury's still out on whether it's good but may 1953 we're gonna start with may 2nd okay if you will your favorite thing of all things we cover it was the 79th kentucky derby oh that's hey, not my favorite thing you want to guess guitar. what jockey won um little bits no the jockey what jockey it was. oh um that was a jockey hank moreno oh i don't know he won aboard dark star and they he they beat a hall of famer native dancer Ooh. dark star just so you know that horse was sired by royal gem an Australian stallion who was imported to the United States to stand at Hermitage Stud in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. As a yearling, Dark Star was consigned to the Keeneland sales, where he was bought for $6,500 by Harry Frank Guggenheim. Mm-hmm. No relation to the Guggenheim Museum. All right. What's next? There you go. May 3rd was the very next day. And I don't know if you know this, but WTVO TV Channel 17 in Rockford, Illinois, began broadcasting on NBC on this day in 1953. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you tune into WTVO TV Channel 17, you might see Scott Labor, Lieber. He's a divorced father of two sons. He grew up on a small farm in Greenwich, Ohio, home of the South Central Trojans. He earned a cross country scholarship to Ashland, Ohio College, but his heart wasn't about? into it. I'm talking about a local uh, news broadcaster, a sports director at WTVO TV Channel 17 in Rockford, Illinois. If we have a listener that's listening from Rockford, Illinois, they'll be so excited to hear me give the bio of Scott Lieber, a well-known, loved sports anchor. All right, next. They'll be so excited. But I'm anyway, that. he his heart wasn't into cross country. So shortly after enrolling, he left the team to devote all his energy into a future and broadcast journalism, and he called Rockford home since he was hired by WTVO in 1989. And then he was promoted as sports director in 1995. Scott Lieber, everybody. Okay. Excited. One time he arm-wrestled Hulk Hogan. Um, Okay. And Scott Lieber was quoted to say he's very shy and quiet. He's totally comfortable speaking in front of groups for every single event. But he has no, you know, he's shy. He's no good at parties, he said. 
So back, that's enough, enough about that. And then May 3rd, we have our first birthday. And trust me, I've changed what I'm doing with birthdays. I'm now going to make them exciting, and I'm going to make you love them. Mm-hmm. And here's how I'm doing it. May 3rd, play the birthday. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. Bruce Hall. Bruce Hall is born American rock bassist from Ario Speedwagon. Born in Champaign, Illinois, he joined the band in 1977, making an appearance on the album You Can Tune a Piano, But You Can't Tune a Fish, released the following year. He replaced Greg Philbin. That's going to be my new birthday thing. Only people who replace Greg Philbin in bands are the only birthdays I'm going to cover. Okay, that sounds like a good plan. Yep. Um, Unfortunately, over 5,000 parties (laughs) have, have replaced Greg Philbin. And bands. But can't you believe that was the name of an album? You can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish? I don't care. Can't tune a fish? With, Get all, it? with all the horror in the world, what difference does it make? You know what? There is a lot of horror. And I'm going to take another sip of this delicious hazy IPA by Alesmith. Yeah. Well, it's not bad. It's not the best. Mm-hmm. I'll drink it. And then May 4th, 1953, mm-hmm. the Pulitzer Prize for Literature was awarded. You want to guess what author won it? Um, 1953. Yep. John Steinbeck. No, nope. here's a hint. It rhymes with Flernest Shemingway. Oh, Ernest Hemingway. Yes, for the Old Man in the Sea, which I think we already kind of talked to, talked about. Yes. According to Pointer.org, P-O-I-N-T-E-R, Mr. Hemingway's first Pulitzer Prize was this one, $500, mm-hmm. was awarded because the judges found the Old Man in the Sea the most distinguished fiction published in book form during the year by an American author, preferably dealing with American life. He, oh. he had written a bunch of stuff that weren't American, but weren't American before. Okay. And this is American timelines where we talk about American Pulitzer Prizes. Sometimes. Most of the time. Sometimes. But I was not aware that they also gave money for the Pulitzer Prize. Were you aware of that? or No, I don't think I was. Sorry. Now I think it's more like 15 grand, but then it was 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. But in 1953, $500 is equal to Seventy billion dollars today. No, it's not true. Or something. And that brings us to May sixth. Okay. See, we're cruising along because you wouldn't let me go into detail. Scott Lieber, we are Scott Leber. Sorry, we are. Sorry, Scott. Scott asked me to really plug his career on this. He's paying me off. No. May sixth, nineteen fifty-three. Major League Baseball. St. Louis Browns. Alva Bobo Holloman. In his first start as a pitcher, a starting pitcher, he no-hit the visiting Philadelphia A's. They got no hits. Six to nothing, become the first player to do so in their first start since 1900. Wow. He pitched in 22 games that season for the Browns before being sold to a minor league team. Mm -hmm. And then he spent the rest of 53 and 54 in the minor leagues before retiring from active play. After retiring, he ran an advertising agency and worked as a scout until his Grizzly death in 1987. No. Uh, well, he did die. He is dead. Yes, but it was not Grizzly. It might have been Grizzly. You don't know. It's an all-death Grizzly. No. No. Well, anyway, so isn't that crazy? He mm-hmm. did that amazing feat, and then he just retired because it wasn't very good anymore. Yeah. And then May 7th, 1953, Can Can opens at Schubert Theater mm-hmm. for 892 performances. Music and lyrics by Cole Porter and book by Abe Burroughs. The story- never, never seen it. Do you even know what it's about? No. The story concerns the showgirls of the Montmartre 
dance halls during the 1890s. And I looked up how to pronounce that. Uh, French dance halls during the 1890s. It's all about, it's nobody likes it. The original Broadway production ran for over two years. Uh, and the 1954 West End production was also a success. Uh, and this one had Gwen Verdon in only her second Broadway role. And choreographer, choreographer, chore, choreographer Michael Whoa. Kidd won Tony Awards and were, it was praised, but both the score and book received tepid reviews mm-hmm. and revivals generally have not fared well. Nobody likes Can Can anymore. Yeah. So if you are at a summer stock theater and they're going to do Can Can, tell them to fuck off. Right? Yes. It's not going to sell to the blue hairs. No, they're not going to want to go see that Uh, shit. Yeah, I love blue hairs. And then May 8th, 1953, WIPB TV Channel 49 in Muncie, Indiana begins broadcasting. Okay. And just so you know, WIPB, you've probably never heard of it in Muncie, Indiana, have you? No. Their claim to fame is having been the station that the joy of painting originated on, a half-hour art program hosted by? Bob Ross. Bob Ross. Now, it, it kind of originated there. It did have one season on WNVC in Falls Church, Virginia, but that doesn't count because fuck Falls Church, Virginia. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think so. Oh, yeah. Fuck Falls Church, Virginia. If you're listening for Falls Church, Virginia, please stop listening to our podcast. You are not welcome no, that's to not. listen to it. That is not. Do you think anybody's listening from Falls Church, no, Virginia? No, probably not. I don't think so either. If you are, tweet us at History for Jerks. And show us a picture of your grandparents. No, we don't need to see pooping. it. All right. And then on May 10th, 1953, KCBD TV Channel 11 in Lubbock, Texas begins broadcasting. Why are we doing this? And currently on that channel, anchors Karen McRae and Admiral Uresti are the longest running news anchor duo in America. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're 40 years of broadcasting together, and they are best friends off the set. Why are we doing this? Why? How come now there's three of those now? <laughs> it's a new feature I don't like on it. American Timeline. This when new television stations <sighs> begin broadcasting. I think because we're right in the era of when TV started broadcasting yeah. everywhere yeah so that's it's like it's it doesn't on, excuse your behavior it's, it's on the websites that i'm looking for information on mm-hmm. in fact may of 1953 was rather boring and mostly the only news is new stations broadcasting oh, okay. so i had to like dive you deep had to into jam, jazz it up a little bit but it is notable when i fall into this that karen mckay and abner uresti is a man and woman they're the longest-running news anchor duo in America, over 40 years oh. of broadcasting together, and they're best friends off the air. They are? She, Yes, she is a seven-time winner seven-time winner of the Anson Jones Award, mm-hmm. selected by the Texas Medical Association. She's won the prestigious Edward R. Murrow Award three times and earned an Emmy nom- nomination for Best News Documentary, and she's a recipient of the Lone Star Excellence in My Market Award uh, a few years back. She's co-host of the Children's Miracle Network Telethon since 84. She's helped raise more than $12 million for the Children's Hospital at University Medical Center. So you're thinking she's better than the guy, right? You're thinking mm-hmm. she's better than this Abner fella. But Abner has also received numerous awards for excellence in education reporting, including statewide awards from the Texas State Teachers Association. Mm-hmm. You like that? The Association of Texas Professional Educators and the Texas Parent Teacher Association. In addition, Abner has been recognized numerous times by the Texas AP Broadcaster Division for his work at News Channel 11. He served on several boards, including the Library's Board. God, this is really the boring. The Lubbock Area Foundation. Just I, was say, I really want to see how long you let me talk about stop. Abner Uresti. I just can't anymore. But he's a strong advocate for education. I thought it's you liked It's fine, that. but come on. 
and he really cares about at-risk kids. All right, on May 11th, now it's going to get juicy, all right? You ready for it to get juicy? Mm-hmm. May 11th, 1953, a tornado kills 114 people in Waco, Texas. Wow. That's Innocent people who have done nothing wrong, $39 million in damage. These people died. A deadly series of at least 33 tornadoes hit at least 10 different U.S. states from May 9th to 11th, 1953. Tornadoes appeared daily from Minnesota in the north to Texas in the south. Daily from those wow. three days. The strongest and deadliest tornado was a powerful F5 tornado that struck Waco, causing 114 of the 144 deaths in the outbreak. Wow, that's a lot. Alongside the 1902 Goliad tornado, it was the deadliest tornado in Texas history and is the 11th deadliest tornado in U.S. history. <clears throat> the winds demolished more than 600 houses, 1,000 other structures, and over 2,000 vehicles. 597 injuries occurred, and many survivors had to wait more than 14 hours for rescue. Yeah. Because you couldn't tweet about it then. Right. You had to wait. It struck during the heart of the downtown area at the end of the workday, mm-hmm. so many people were caught unaware of the impend- impending severe weather. 30 people were killed when a six-story furniture store collapsed, mm-hmm. while five others were killed in their cars. It was so, it was, it was just, it was a massive disaster. Are you happy now? We went from do-gooder news anchors to people dying in a tragedy. I guess I am. You are happy about it. I guess so. And then now to sports. May 13th, 1953, the New York Giants, Willie Mays and Daryl Spencer, Mm -hmm. two different guys, each hit two home runs and a triple in one game, the same game. Hmm. How about that? And then I'll move on because you hate sports. May 18th, 1953, American Jacqueline Cochran, how about this for some women's kick-ass history? Kick-ass women in history. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of American woman Jacqueline Cochran? American woman. Stay away from me. me. Well, on May 18, 1953, Jacqueline Cochran became the first woman to break the sound barrier. Oh, that's cool. She pioneered women's aviation as one of the most prominent racing pilots of her generation. Okay. She set numerous records and was the first woman to break the sound barrier. Okay. She was the wartime head of the Women Air Force Service Pilots, other known as WASP, along with Nancy Love. They employed about a thousand civilian American women in a non-combat role to ferry planes from factories to port cities, and was later a sponsor of the Mercury Thirteen Women Astronaut Program. Mm-hmm. How about that? How about that? She did all kinds of other kick-ass shit. She was known as the Speed Queen. Mm-hmm. So how about that? You never knew that happened. You never knew about her. And I am a feminist teaching you about women. You are. Now you know a little bit more about kick-ass women, thanks to me. Yep. And then on May 19th, 1953, mm-hmm. a nuclear explosion in Nevada, fallout in St. George, uh, happened. It was a test. The test device, codenamed Hamlet, was detonated atop a 300-foot tower. Mm-hmm. The device produced a yield of 32 kilotons. Wow. I don't know why that's news. And then May 23rd, 1953, WHIZ Wiz TV Channel 18 in Zanesville begins broadcasting. And currently, the news anchor producer is named Carolyn Flegel. Oh. Flegel. Like yeah, Carolyn Flegel. You know, she left after six years to start a family, Carolyn Flegel returned to Wiz TV in All 2006. Right. Stop. She's currently an anchor and producer. You're Carolyn Flegel. You're, you're starting that shit again. Carolyn Flegel, y'all. She grew up in Kettering, Ohio, a suburb of Dayton. She graduated from Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. <laughs> you and I went to BGSU, though. That's where we went. Falcons. Isaac Zuba. 
think we've jumped the shark, honey. Okay, one more little thing about Carolyn Flegel. She enjoys reading, going on walks, and spending time with her two sons. That's you don't care about Carolyn Flegel? All right, May twenty fifth, nineteen fifty three. How about this? All right, I'm just gonna skip this one. It's the first PBS station ever. Okay. Ever broadcast. That's all you have to say about it, though. You don't have to read that paragraph that's all this Yeah, but I found garbage. all this stuff about Carolyn Flegel. Are you saying Carolyn Flegel's garbage? May 25th, the first non-commercial education television station in Houston, Texas, was established by Dr. John C. Schwartzwalder. Okay. And I, I got on really quickly. I just went on Ancestry, and I, I downloaded Dr. John Schwartzwalder's entire family tree. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go through it right now. No. Entire... <laughs> I traced them back to the 1400s, and I'm going to just read it all. Stop it. I'm just kidding. May 25th, 1953, Braves. The Atlanta Braves, I think he was the Atlanta Braves. Might not have been Atlanta then. Max Surkant struck out a record eight reds in a row. Um, and people care about that. Mm-hmm. Some people do. Here's a quote from 1950. Uh, sports writer Jim Cooper wrote on June 12th, Folks are saying that six-foot Mark Surkant of the Sacramento Solons is the handiest man tossing the pill in the Pacific Coast League. I just want to say that quote in a ba- old baseball Mm-hmm. Old timey voice. Yeah, uh, you like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, one more thing about Max Sarkant. Uh, Max was just a nickname, mm-hmm. and he had a, a real fondness for Polish sausage. I looked that up. So I'm just saying no. And then May 29, 1953, at 11:30 a.m. on May 29th, Edmund Hillary of New Zealand mm-hmm. and Tenzing Norgay, a Sherpa of Nepal, became the first Climb Mount Everest explorers. How did you know that? You know their names? Yep. Sir Edmund Hillary. I'm to reach him. the summit of Mount Everest. Yep. Which at 29,035 feet above sea level is the highest point on Earth. Yes. They ended up having to gnaw each other's arms. No, off. they did not. No, they You're okay. telling stories and lies. They were part of the ninth British expedition to Everest led by John Hunt. Not Mike Hunt. Stop. But John Hunt. All right. And now here's the cool thing about it. While Hillary claimed that he and Norgay reached the summit together, Norgay mm-hmm. claimed that Hillary was up there first. Mm-hmm. Uh, but however it happened, the men remain lifelong friends. Okay. I have a question about Sherpas, though. Do you know anything about Sherpas? Like, how much do you know about Sherpas? They, like, live on the mountain and they m- walk people up the mountain. Yeah, so people who are mountain climbers pay them, right? Yeah. To just lead them up the mountain. Carry all their shit? Or no, they, they carry lead them up shit? the mountain. They just help them? Yeah. I'm pretty so sure. So why would Edward Hillary get any credit? Why wouldn't it just... The Sherpa? The Sherpa. The racism. Yeah, because they are people mm-hmm. of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there was a legend that a Buddha god lived on the top of Mount Everest, mm-hmm. and Norgay uh, said uh, he he had wanted to worship there. So, uh, and he told everybody that he left an offering mm-hmm. up on the top of the mountain: a chocolate bar, biscuits, and candy on the summit. Oh, how about that? How about that? And then I'm almost to then. I'm almost to you. And you can take over, and I'll never talk about broadcasting stations or Carolyn Flegel ever mm. again. Carolyn Flegel, yeah. But Carolyn Flegel might listen to this. No. Keep going. She's a good-looking woman. Uh, May 30th, Indianapolis 500. What, that year was labeled the hottest 500 due to high temperatures. Bill Vukovich won his first of two consecutive Indy 500 victories. Mm. But Carl Scarborough dropped out of the race and then later died of the heat prostration wow so during his first pit stop he felt sick from the heat and fumes at the race mm-hmm. after a fuel spill during the pit stop a minor fire broke out involving the side of his car 
Scarborough climbed over the pit wall and collapsed onto a chair. Bob Scott replaced Scarborough on the track. Bob Scott's a guy I went to school with. Scott's own car had experienced mechanical difficulties earlier in the race, but he finished the race for Scarborough in 12th place. Scarborough was taken to Speedway's hospital where he died. His temperature was recorded as 104 degrees on admission to the hospital. Physicians there unsuccessfully performed mm-hmm. open heart massage before Scarborough was pronounced Ugh. dead. Can you imagine open heart no. massage? Like just massaging your heart? Yeah. That's what they did. Yeah, I know. The temperature was 91 degrees in Indianapolis that day. Nine drivers were treated for heat-related illness. Oh, God. Oh, man. Driver Pat Flaherty suffered minor injuries when he fainted and crashed into a wall later in the race. The track temperature reached 130 degrees. Oh. I, and then even Chet Miller, another racer, died in a crash during a practice run before the start of the race. I don't understand racing. Like, if it's that fucking hot, just call it off. Seriously. What are you racing for? Why are you risking why are you your ra- life? Why are you in a hurry? Nobody's going to remember who fucking won. No. What's the hurry? No, really. And I guess I'll just go ahead and uh, skip May 31st, 1953, when Channel 38 in St. Petersburg, Tampa, Florida, did its first broadcast. Oh, you are, are you? Yeah, I'm not even going to talk about uh, that their broadcast began with a dedicating ceremony featuring Samuel G. Johnson, the mayor of St. Petersburg, and Curtis Six, the mayor of Tampa, and Herbert Brown, the mayor of Clearwater. I won't even mention that. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the Towpath murders. Say this again, the what? The Towpath murders. Towpath, like T-O-E-P-A-T-H? T-O-W. Oh, like towing. Towpath. T-O-W-P-A-T-H. Is that all one word? Yeah. The Towpath murders. Now, this is in jolly old England again. Oh, no. This is not not an American timeline. This is a British timelines episode. We need to get some British guests. Yeah. So, around this time... Everybody, Queen Elizabeth's getting ready to be, have her coronation. Yeah, we've right? been talking about that. This is the first year of the Queen. But there was a, um, in the UK, in the area of Teddington. UK stands for United Kingdom. Teddington, I don't know where that is. Do you? Teddington, it's uh, Middlesex in Middlesex. Oh, yeah. Middlesex. I don't know. If you're from Teddington, tweet us at History for Jerks. But they, these idyllic little town... You know, and it all, all of a sudden news comes across that these two local teenage girls had been brutally murdered oh, no. on the picturesque towpath by Teddington's Lock. Oh, no. That's a lake. That's a lake. A lock is a lake. I know that. So both uh, best friends, Barbara Songhurst, who was 16, and Christine Reed, who was 18. The lesson here is don't be best friends. They, they lived in Teddington and sometimes rode along the leafy, meandering towpath at weekends. Huh. They enjoyed carefree adventures, cycling in an era free of congested vehicles, and took the same familiar route back home on the night they were attacked on Sunday, May 31st. Oh, I also love carefree adventures. During, this is sad. During the day before their terrible fates... The yeah. girls cycled several times along the towpath stretching from Richmond to Teddington, where they stopped to chat to some boys who were camping on the route. Boys are bad news. John Wells, a witness, informed the police that the girls arrived at a camp at around 8 p.m. and then left at 11 p.m. They had then been seen cycling along the dark towpath at around 11.30, which, although sounds a little late for such young girls, does show how safe the tranquil area was perceived by yeah, its pe- residents. People probably didn't care because they right. were like, oh, nothing ever happened. So the following day, Monday, June 1st. Oh, the same day that David Berkowitz was born. Oh. Boom. Murder. Murder. You love it. All right. Yes. Um, The first of the young victims was found. 
The attack on Barbara Songhurst had taken place near Teddington Lock, where the scene of the horrific crime featured trampled grass and some bloodstained daisies. A trail of blood led wow, along the towpath gross. where the killer had taken the victim's body and thrown her into the water. Whatever the true circumstances of the attack on both females and who was attacked first, there is no doubt of its brutality. The 16-year-old's body was found two miles down the Thames near St. Catherine's Convent in Twickenham. Oh, Twickenham. She exhibited terrible injuries caused by a heavy blow to the cheek and a fractured skull, along with three deep stab wounds in her back. Oh. It was also confirmed that the teenage victim had been raped. Oh, gross. Rape's not fun. Pathologists indicated that the sexual attack had been carried out by what was bizarrely described at the time as an expert rapist, or certainly what? a man who had possibly committed such crimes before. The investigation what? into this terrible crime began the next day. So then they dredged I, the river I, I, for evidence. I don't get what, why that, how you could tell someone is. I don't know. The evidence led them to believe expert. that. Oh. So they dredged the river for okay, evidence. Dredged the river, figure out who did it. Two pairs of abandoned shoes and socks were found during the search, but still no sign of Christine Reed. Then on June 2nd. Oh, the same day that Vidar Johansson, Norwegian saxophonist, was born? Yes. So was Cornell West. He was born that day, too. Oh, cool. Um, her, her bicycle was found on the river mud, a hundred yards upstream from the murder site. Okay. And then on Friday, June 5th. Oh, the same day that Denmark adopted a new constitution? Yes. That same day? Um, amid these coronation celebrations, where 20,000 people attended the Teddington River pageant. So there's this big. Yeah, all these people People there. coming. And the police are still looking for Reed's body. Oh, so they got not going to let people there, right? Surely well, they're no, they're, it off. There's, they're there, and then these there's these loudspeakers at the event announcing oh, no. to, to the bigger-than-expected crowd, we are not looking for bodies, we are only here for the pageant. <laughs> what? Nothing to see here. Yeah, no murder much. here, I swear. So then the next day, which was Saturday, June 6th, Oh, the same day that former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Greece, Demetrius Avramopoulos, was born? Yes. That same day? Christine's body was found floating near Glover's Island, less than a mile from Richmond Bridge. Oh. Similar to Barbara's injuries, Christine's skull had also been fractured, along with six <sighs> stab wounds in her chest. Jeez. She had also been raped. The, the pathologist stated that the attacks Insult had been injury. the work of a maniac and that the assailant was a monster as strong as an ape. you got to be a maniac to do that to somebody. Yeah. The intensive and grueling search in the river's mud failed to reveal a credible murder weapon or, for that matter, any sign of Barbara's bicycle. It was assumed that the killer may have used it to escape the scene. Initial thoughts were that the double rape and murder had been carried out by two men. Oh, they thought there's two suspects. Well, because they're both. How, how, can, yeah, you how can you do rape that to and two murder one girl? You have to incapacitate one. Right. And so, you know, I'm thinking you either have to be a crazy, like a nut or a lunatic, or you got to be pushed to the edge. Like maybe they were just pushed tested to the limits what do you mean tested to the limits like what maybe just mean? maybe just over the edge maybe stress oh give me a break white <laughs> men always get these excuses for bad behavior hey, how do you know he's white give me a break of course he was yeah stupid white man. all right so Fuck you guys so duncan webb a reporter yeah. for the news of the world at the time happened to have been in teddington on the night of the attack Oh, really? And he, he usually reported the crime, but this time found himself to be questioned as a potential suspect. Oh, what? Because standard police procedure relating to crimes of rape meant that any man within a, the crime vicinity had to be considered as a suspect and Good. investigated. It should be. So the reporter, Check though, your dicks. he suggests to the police that the attacks 
rather having been committed by two men, were more likely to have been carried out by one assailant. The, the reporter said that? Mm-hmm. And he said that was based on the evidence that the similar injuries found on both victims indicated a single, a single MO by the killer. The notion okay. that two men responsible for the rape and murder of two girls in the same place and sharing the same M.O. was, as yeah, Webb suggested, less plausible. Happen. Yeah, I agree with that. So once the theory Even of... Even though he's a suspect, I agree with it. Yeah, once Logic. the theory of one man being responsible was given credence, what still couldn't be explained was how one man managed to attack both girls at the same time when one of the girls would have been free to run away. Well, had to incapacitate him. So then a genius notion struck Webb. Perhaps the killer had thrown the knife at one victim. Yeah. The idea would go some way to explain the wounds on her back. Webb's theories were taken on board to the extent that police made inquiries at local circuses and various theaters to establish if any knife-throwing entertainer had been in Teddington (laughs) on the night of murders. Well, I mean, that that sounds ridiculous. I know. What are the chances? But... I don't think anybody could just throw a knife and hit someone. Right, like you have to. Ha- be I don't good know at how that. to throw a knife and hit somebody. I, no. I'm willing to try, but no, I bet I you I can't do it. So, so we want to practice it in the driveway real quick. We'll take a break from the podcast. Go. I'll throw some knives at your back and see if I can hit, and then we'll get back on and finish. Or, so the other thing no, that they stop. No, I'm not. The other thing that <laughs> they um were saying that he was that he had to probably be a local man because. To be able to wander around at yeah, night and be not hide. be noticed. Well, and probably, and also know that there's going to be people riding around alone, you know? Yeah. So, um. I don't know. Man, I don't know. They look further afield. The, they revisit a vicious case of rape of a 14-year-old girl on Oxshot Heath in Surrey, eight miles from Teddington. Yeah. That attack took place a week before Christine and Barbara were killed. It, only a week? So, yeah. of course. Yeah. Compare the shit, man. It had been reported at the time that a man had been terrifying women and girls in open spaces on the Surrey side of the river. On June 17th. Oh, the same day that Man Against Crime was on TV, also known as Follow That Man, starring Ralph Bellamy. One of the first television programs about private eyes on CBS and the Dumont Television Network and NBC. It was one of the first few television programs to be simulcast on more than one network. Oh, so that's all you could watch. You had no choice that day. They were like, you all want to watch this Everybody's watching this. Everybody wants to see Ralph fucking Bellamy and his beautiful package. So a woman by the name of Mrs. Birch was sexually assaulted in Richmond Park on that date. Mrs. Birch? Yeah. A police patrol car later picked up a man walking aimlessly in Weybridge some 11 miles away from the scene of the assault. 22-year-old Alfred Charles Whiteway was taken to the police station but released after he convincingly conducted himself. Oh, but that's him. That's him. That's him. He was was also offered an apology for having been picked up. Oh, no. They picked him up. They had the guy. I'm convinced. You're convinced? Okay. I'm convinced just by his name. What did you say his name was? Alfred Charles Whiteway. Oh, definitely did it. That's the name of a killer. So, the following June 18th. Yeah, the following day, right? Yeah. Which was the same day that giving new meaning to the term seventh inning stretch, the Red Sox scored 17 runs in one inning against the Detroit Tigers. That same day? Yes. When an officer named P.C. Kosh was cleaning patrol cars in Kensington Police Station. P.C. Kosh. He happened to find a hatchet shoved under the rear seat of one car. Of one of the patrol cars? Yeah. Not thinking too much about how it got there, he put it in his locker before leaving the station for the day. But then... Hey, free machete. He became ill. So then he was off for work for five days. Oh, my goodness. So then he comes back. Flub. Major flub. Takes the hatchet home and uses it for domestic chores. No. So this careless act... (laughs) What a fucking idiot. I know. He's using a murder weapon for household chores. Yep. 
And now I'm going to bring it back. So then on June 28th. Oh, the same day that Operation Neptune was on television. It's a show that follows the adventures of a submarine captain named Commander Bill Hollister, otherwise known as Captain Neptune, as he battles undersea forces that same day. Yes. Nearly a month since of the vicious murders, a passing motorist stopped for a male hitchhiker. Something oh. about the passenger reminded the observant driver about the mystery man wanted in connection with the Oxshot rape. Unsettled by the incident, the driver went to police with his concerns. Yeah. The hitcher was picked up and charged with the Oxshot rape. Placed really? in, in an identity parade. He Just because w- that got suspicion? Well, originally? he was placed in an identity parade, and Mrs. Birch identified him as the man who had assaulted her in really? Richmond Park. Okay. The identified man was Alfred Whiteway. It was him. Who I had knew been it. questioned and released. And yes. he's the one who left the knife in the car. Yes. Car. So. Detective Hannum was cer- certain that they had their killer. Yep, they got him. But during the investigation, it. it was discovered that murder suspect Whiteway was closely associated with victim Barbara Songhurst's family. Oh. Barbara's sister-in-law, June, had once yeah. been Whiteway's girlfriend. Uh, Furthermore, oh. June's sister, Josephine Knight, had attended school with Whiteway and had once hoped to marry him. Yeah, but Josephine Knight's kind of a bitch. We can't trust her, right? More bizarrely, the 16-year-old's victim's older brother, Danny, knew the suspected killer well and defended his character to the police. Danny defended him? Yeah. Fuck Danny. Barbara's brother was adamant that Whiteway would never have hurt his sister. June also insisted that Whiteway was a kind and considerate man, even though they were well aware he had a strange habit of carrying a knife. Really? The family's view of Whiteway was that he was a decent boy and a gentleman. I would think that wouldn't be strange in 1953 to carry a knife. Well, he did own this Gurkha knife. And what's a Gurkha knife? It's a certain kind of knife. Like a big, is it big, big knife? Like a big yeah. and gross? And it soon became apparent to the detective that the suspect was not only a keen knife throwing enthusiast, oh. but that his exceptional skills in this area yep. meant he could split a matchbox from 30 yards. Hold, split a matchbox from 30 yards? But another far more important Holy fact shit. came to light when it was revealed that Whiteway could hit a chalk line on a tree with That's a hatchet him. from up to 40 yards away. Oh, if you could do that, then he definitely could stab a girl in the back to incapacitate her. And when he was asked where the hatchet was that he threw at trees, he replied that he kept it in a cupboard at home. But they searched they and they find couldn't it find it. Because it was at the other guy's house. And then he was doing it for chores. detective asked about it again. And then Whiteway admitted that Kingston police had it after he pushed it under the seat of the police car when he was picked up at Weybridge. Uh, so then they race over and they discover that PC Koch used the axe for weeks for chopping PC firewood. Koch. Unwittingly destroyed it's any really forensic nice evidence knife. due to his fingerprints. Oh no! And Easy the caught you idiot. The blade had also become blunted. Um, oh, but I bet it. So, I bet it was a good use though, cutting that firewood. Even though the forensic evidence was now not possible to be found on the primary murder exhibit, its reappearance brought about an unexpected reaction when the detective placed the hatchet on the table in front of Whiteway. He recognized it to the extent that he even complained it had been bashed about and uh. blunted as if it was a priceless possession of his. And when Whiteway was told bloodstains had been found in an eyelet in the seam of his shoes, yeah. the effect on him was one of angry resignation. Huh. Confronted with his own weapon and news of forensic evidence, the dawning reality that he'd been caught prompted Whiteway to utter, You know bloody well it was me. You uh. know bloody well I done it. What a yeah, bloody mess. Well. I'm mental. I must have a fucking woman. I can't stop myself. <laughs> I can't stop myself. In a chilling matter of a, 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 in a chilling matter of fact attitude, yeah. Whiteway described how he attacked and killed both girls on the night of the, May 31st, making out he initially only saw one and hitting her with the hatchet before noticing her friend further down the towpath who was screaming. <sighs> I nipped over and shut her up. Whiteway's emotionally detached demeanor dismissive of the cruelty and savagery he inflicted on the two innocent girls, clearly indicated a sociopathic mind. Oh. But was he mad? 
As far as Whiteway was concerned, it was his mental state at fault as he complained to the police that the doctors wouldn't do anything to help him, possibly hoping or supposing that a jury would bring about a verdict of diminished responsibility. Diminished responsibility. That's a thing. Absolutely insanity. Because he's nuts. Yeah. Looking at the paper in front of him, he shouted, I can't stop it. Give it. Give us it. I'll sign it. So then they go to trial. And... So that accent wasn't as good as last time. Oh. But it was okay. But just you did. You were so much invested in the. Well, they go to accent. they go to trial and all this shit happens, and then it's <laughs> done. And then Whiteway, they find him it's too guilty. much for you. I'm done. Yeah, they too much work. Yeah, they find him guilty, and then he's hanged. He's hanged by the legendary hangman Albert Pierpoint at Wadsworth Prison on December twenty second, nineteen fifty three. Wait, he was hanged the same day that Jack Dunn the third officially turns over the name Orioles to the Major League baseball st louis browns that his family has successfully operated the international league orioles franchise for years in baltimore maryland and now this because the st louis browns relocated to baltimore and voila we now have the baltimore orioles that same day yes you don't care about that no so that was the story of the towpath murders the towpath murders that was pretty good that was pretty interesting i thought i'm just tired it's you're an older lady. You we can't do this unless it's Sunday or Saturday, I think. And it's Monday. We're recording on a Monday. But it's hard when I get up at five in the morning. You should this. not have gotten up at five. Right. That was a mistake. I have to part. go be at work, honey. Well, we can just stroll in any time. There's no kids. I think. It's not true. We have a meeting this morning. Well, that's we'll save 7:30. that. Thirty. We'll save that for a domestic yep. argument. Uh, our listeners don't want to hear us. No, it's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Thank you for listening to American Timelines by History for Jerks. Thank you for listening. Sorry we took a week off, but you're probably fine with that. What? Bail through. Listen to Matt Truman Ego Trip take over. Take over this podcast from here on out. Lock us out. Man, that guy, Matt Truman. Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music.